Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. So today we're going to talk about the Achilles tendinopathy management um, for mid-portion Achilles issues. Um, That's a CPG that was revised in 2018. It was first done in 2010. So as you go through the 2018 CPG, if you're following along, you'll see there's also 2010 summaries, and we'll talk about the updates as we go. So the literature suggests that the incidence of Achilles tendinopathy particularly in runners, ranges between 7 and 9%, and they're the most commonly affected cohort by this. It's typically classified as a frequent overuse or overstress overload injury, although know that it's um, reported in a wide variety of sports, and you will see some uh, sedentary individuals, inactive individuals present with this. Generally, Achilles issues increase as age increases with the mean age affected between 30 and 50 years old. Sex is not directly studied in terms of the prevalence, um, but uh, some data suggests that males are more affected than females. So when we talk about the pathoanatomic features of Achilles tendinopathy, the major complaint of these patients is um, mid-calf or mid-substance pain in the Achilles that limits activity. Pain is preceded by Excessive mechanical stresses, such as tensile loading and shearing, which causes pathologic changes at the tendon level. These pathologic changes can be classified as tenocyte proliferation with tendon thickening, neovascularity, collagen fibril thinning and disorganization, increase of non-collagenic and fibrocartilage matrix, fat deposition, altered fluid movement, and an overproduction of nitric acid with tissue apoposites. So those are kind of your main stresses or tendon um, pathologic issues that could cause Achilles tendinopathy. Obviously, there's quite a few. And essentially, all of these pathologic processes in one way or another weaken the mechanical and the material properties of the tendon, which causes the tendon to become weaker. It causes to have decreased stiffness and strength. Therefore, it can't effectively transfer forces well over the lower leg and causes motor control deficits, which can contribute to some pain. Inflammation and degeneration are not usually mutually exclusive, but they can coexist through the process. So what that means is not all Achilles tendinopathies are an inflammatory process just because they have that um, tendon pathologic degeneration going on, but they can occur together. They suggest that the extent and or severity of tendon abnormalities are not consistently related to the severity of clinical presentation. Some research also suggests that the plantaris tendon may be involved in those with chronic Achilles tendinopathy, and the plantaris tendon and the associated nerve structures around there may cause impingement on the medial aspect of the Achilles, contributing to some of the pain if there's pain localized more on that medial side. The next thing that they want to discuss in the CPG is the risk factors. So a couple things I want to point out specifically in the evidence update are a couple specific studies they reference. One of them is a prospective study that found altered posterior and anterior force displacements and an increase in laterally directed forces underneath the forefoot as risk factors for developing Achilles tendinopathy in runners who are noted to be heel strikers. So again, 
watching running mechanics and seeing how the patients are moving can sometimes give you, you know, quality of motion can give you just as much information as quantity of motion. We'll talk more about objective measures as we go, but looking really where their forefoot strike is, where the heel strike, um, and whether they're having an anterior posterior load transfer or increased lateral transfer of uh, forces. They also mentioned a retrospective study here that, um, looked at injuries in military recruits who were given, given either a rigid or a shock absorbing insole when they were issued their combat boots. And the recruits that were issued a shock absorbing insole had a 50% reduction in Achilles tendinopathy rates with an incidence of only 4% compared to the sustained 8% occurrence rate with rigid insoles. So again, we can talk more about orthotics as we go. I know we talked about them in the plantar fasciitis episode but just know that the shock absorbing ones did decrease the Achilles tendinopathy rate in that population specifically. Um, level three evidence reviews note limited evidence for hip muscle performance as risk factors when generally looking at leg, ankle, and foot injuries. Um, but they do suggest that neuromuscular deficits in the glute med can contribute to um, function in those with Achilles tendinopathy. So even though there may not be a direct cause or correlation there, I would still encourage you to look up at the glute strength, glute muscle activation, that kind of a thing, just to make sure that you're not missing anything or leaving the patient at a predisposition for a re-injury or a reoccurrence through their rehab. And then of note that I think this is important, it's only level three evidence, but um, it's important Systematic reviews have specifically identified an increased risk of tendon injury with the use of fluorinoquine antibiotic therapy. So the risk of developing a mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy is obviously multifactorial. It's going to be related to a combination of in intrinsic and extrinsic factors that ultimately cause that tendon overloading. How the body responds to the loading will be influenced by the patient's overall health conditions, any medications they may be on, or any genetic factors they may have. So many studies that looked at eccentric loading have excluded patients with some of these tissue um, frailty comorbidities, and therefore it's difficult to determine whether eccentric exercises and eccentric loading type activities are beneficial all the way across the board because of these patients that can't participate in those studies. So um, when they then talk about the clinical course, um, they say that the medium time to recover and it was average of 82 days. Um, in this particular cohort that they referenced, they say minimum of 21 days and a maximum of 479 days. So obviously that's a huge range. Um, you know, I can't say I get these patients overly acutely in the clinic. I think oftentimes they've tried to manage on their own or they're already in that subacute or chronic phase when they come to therapy. I don't generally treat um, high like intensity runners or high intensity athletes. So I don't see these generally shorter recovery times. I generally see them on the longer end. I can't say 479 days specifically, but I'd say a couple months I would put most of these patients at. I don't know, Alexis, do you have anything to add on general timeline of when you usually see these patients or how long you feel like they take to recover? Yeah, so I feel like it's kind of like um, with plantar fasciitis where it's so variable and a lot of times people deal with this issue for a long time. They kind of try managing it on their own before they really start to, you know, see somebody about it. So I don't really have a 
specific, like this is how long I usually see. I mean, it's so variable. There's just so many different factors. And sure, sure. And I think that's going to be one of those characteristic findings of tendinopathy, Achilles tendinopathy in the clinic is you're going to see these really variable timelines. Um, moving down through this section of the CPG, they suggest that sex may influence the response to treatment with eccentric exercise, um, suggesting that females with Achilles tendinopathy perceived more pain and less of an improvement in function compared to males following 12 weeks of eccentric training. And that was level two evidence. Research also suggests that a greater BMI played a role in the development of Achilles tendinopathy. Um, you know, I think that they say that then BMI doesn't necessarily influence the response to non-surgical treatment. So again, obviously, if you have a higher BMI, more force transfer through the feet, you're going to be at an increased risk, especially if you have a lot of standing throughout the day, that kind of a thing. But they should still be um, good candidates for non-surgical interventions. So they suggest that an athlete's misparticipation can, expect, can be expected to be brief. However, decline in performance may occur in older athletes and symptoms may return if it's not properly treated. Re recovery time can vary from brief to many months and is probably dependent on the severity of the injury. So recovery may be influenced by intrinsic factors such as sex while patients will improve um, mixed levels of recovery should be expected. So moving into diagnosis and classification, the 2018 recommendation is that clinicians should use a positive ARC sign, the Royal London Hospital test, and a subjective report of pain located two to six centimeters proximal to the Achilles tendon insertion that begins gradually, and it's going to be tender to palpate. Um, that set of criteria is really the, um, what you should be looking for to diagnose this, um, which has changed from the 2010 recommendation where they say that one of the hallmark signs is self-reported stiffness after a period of inactivity. Um, I think that that sometimes can be a finding, but the updated recommendation is not to use that as your hallmark sign. Looking at differential diagnosis, clinicians should consider diagnostic classifications other than mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, including involvement of the plantaris tendon, which I mentioned earlier. So if they're having a lot more of that medial pain, it's definitely something to consider. Then they also have a list in here of other conditions which you should consider if there's posterior ankle pain. I'm going to read them. Um, I'd be familiar with them. A lot of them I think you've probably been familiarized to before. So acute Achilles tendon rupture. Obviously, if you're suspecting a tendon rupture, you should be doing a, the Thompson test, um, a partial tear of the Achilles, retrocalcaneal bursitis, posterior ankle impingement, irritation or neuroma of the sural nerve, accessory soleus muscle, Achilles tendon ossification, some kind of systemic inflammatory disease, fascial tears, or um, more of an insertional Achilles tendinopathy, which they don't cover a ton in this CPG. Um, I think it's covered a little bit more in the current concepts, so I'd be aware of that also. Regarding imaging in these populations, essentially ultrasound imaging and MRI may be useful in assessing for differential diagnoses and identifying coexisting pathologies, such as those partial ruptures or tears, any kind of bursitis, peritendinitis, plantaris involvement, and our fascial tears. Um, there's conflicting evidence on the level of association between the severity of a tendon abnormality seen on imaging and the presented symptoms. There's Research suggests that there's currently going to develop an ultrasound 
technique to estimate tissue mechanical properties, so the extent of which it's involved, which may provide more insight into the symptoms and limitation that the patient's presenting with. So again, like we've been saying through all of these CPG podcast episodes, when we talk about imaging, it does not always and actually rarely correlates to exactly what the patient's clinical presentation is. And I think it's important to educate the patients on that. So as we move through the rest of the CPG, the authors put together a decision tree model, which is on page A12 and um, A13 of the CPG, if you're following along. I'm going to kind of verbally go through it. They break it into five different components. And those five different components include medical screening, classification of the condition through evaluation of clinical findings, determination of the irritability stage of the tissue, determination of evaluative outcome measures, and the intervention strategies for patients in acute and non-acute stages. So the first component, the medical screening, um, if you're finding something that's suggestive of like an Achilles acute tendon, acute Achilles tendon rupture or systemic inflammatory disease, those kind of conditions are going to require another referral. But again, just be asking yourself that question. Is this patient appropriate for PT? Are they treatable? Do they, can I treat them, but they still need a referral? Or should I be referring this patient out to a different healthcare provider? Component two involves the evaluation of physical exam findings. Um, we'll go over those, which include, you know, the, what I talked about, that gradual onset of pain, that centimeter, that two to six centimeter proximal Achilles insertion tenderness, the positive arc sign, and those sorts of findings that you're going to see that the patient's going to um, give you. Component three is tissue irritability. Um, so what it's really reflective of, the tissue irritability, is how able is that tissue to handle a physical stress? And is it related to their physical status and extent of in injury or inf inflammation that's present? So the diagnosis of tissue irritability should be classified as acute, non-acute, or chronic according to the signs and symptoms and duration. Um, again, a chronic tissue is going to handle stress much differently than an acutely irritated tissue. So just being aware, I think some of that comes from the patient and some of that comes from your observation and exam clinical findings. So that's really your clinical judgment that's going to help you come up with the level of tissue irritability. The fourth component they talk about are outcome measures. They suggest standardized tools such as the Visa-A, the FAM, and the LEFTS, which we've talked about in the other foot and ankle episodes. And they say that those are good for measuring specific foot and ankle domains, body structure or function, and activity limitations or participation restrictions. The fifth component um, outlines intervention strategies. So they suggest that interventions are grouped based on the following categories. Therapeutic exercise, which they include as stretching, exercise, neuromuscular re-education, manual therapy, education, home of use of home medical supplies, such as bracing, and clinical um, use of medical devices, such as iontophoresis. There's also going to be a brief section that we go through that um, touches on interventions outside the scope of physical therapy, which includes corticosteroid injections, extra uh, corporeal shockwave therapy, and platelet-rich plasma injections, um, just so you're aware of them and are able to educate the, the patient. Um, I think part of the reason why they included this is most of the studies on those um, interventions outside of PT are done on patients with mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. So it's good knowledge to have just for every day of treating your patient. Um, I'm sure that most of us field questions about whether or not patients should have cortisone injection, et cetera. 
So moving into the examination, the outcome measure section, the lower extremity um, functional scale in the FAM were found to be the most commonly used, with the FAM receiving the highest quality assessment score for responsiveness. They also suggest you can use the Visa A to assess pain and stiffness, but that the FAM and the LEFTs are really your go-to for activity participation limitations. Activity limitations and physical performance. Essentially, we're using physical performance measures such as heel raise, endurance tests, hop testing, you know, maybe a gait speed test, depending on the population you're working with, um, to document objectively any kind of findings with their functional status. Physical impairment measures include that we should be measuring include ankle dorsiflexion range of motion, subtalar joint range of motion, plantar flexion strength and endurance, the static arch height, your forefoot alignment, and any pain with palpation. And that's level B evidence exactly the same as the 2010 recommendation. So that really encompasses the exam section of what the authors suggest you should be looking at when you're looking at Achilles tendinopathy. Is there anything else, Alexis, you particularly look at when you're doing an exam on these patients other than what I mentioned? No, I don't think so. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, again, and I think sometimes in these CPGs, what's not emphasized enough is the quality of movement. I think, you know, mm. you know, looking at the quality of gait, the quality of someone's heel raise, you know, if you're looking at heel raise, how much upper extremity support do they need? Are they flexing their knee to gain some of that forward momentum? Are they compensating at their hip? You know, someone can do 20 well-compensated heel raises, and that can give you false information if you're not looking up and down the whole extremity. Again, double leg versus single leg, that kind of a thing. So just being aware of quality of movement with some of these patients, because as some of these tendinopathies take a while to heal or to get better. You need to look for small quality movement changes to show progress. That being said, moving into the intervention stage, the first section they reference is exercise. So the general recommendation for exercise is that clinicians should use mechanical loading, which can either be in the form of eccentric or heavy load, slow speed exercise programs um, to decrease pain and improve function in these patients. So specific factors such as frequency, load, and speed are not standardized across studies, and therefore optimum parameters are not yet formulated. They also suggest that most of these studies that comprise this level A recommendation have excluded participants with those, the frailty of tendon structure. So anyone with a lot of comorbidities probably, certain genetic ones that are on certain medications, Therefore, some of this information is difficult to extrapolate to that population. Be aware of that if that's predominantly the population that you're seeing. Um, I will say that a couple uh, studies that they referenced specifically, there was one where they found eccentric training to be more effective than concentric exercises and general therapeutic exercise and the electroshockwave therapy. It should be noted that compliance with eccentric training and outcomes were found to vary, vary considerably. So again, looking at the patient compliance and getting them to adhere to the program you want can make a di big difference in these populations. Another study was a randomized control trial where they examined a daily exercise group compared to a twice-weekly eccentric exercise group. And at 12 weeks, the differences in the, pain, the Visa A pain score between the daily exercise and the two-week exercise groups was not significant. So as much as they don't define any parameters as to the frequency duration of these types of programs, um, every day probably isn't necessary based on that particular randomized control trial that a couple of times a week is probably sufficient. 
The next category they talk about is stretching. So this is level C evidence, and they say that clinicians may use stretching of the ankle plantar flexors with the knee flexed and the knee extended to reduce pain and improve satisfaction with outcome in patients with mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. So that being said, again, it, they don't make a strong recommendation that it's going to change function. Um, they suggest that it may improve satisfaction, which to me says that the patient's probably perceiving a decrease in pain, even if it's temporary, you know, that may not be what's giving them the carryover of improvement, but after an activity or after prolonged positioning, if it makes them feel better, it's probably worth it. So the study they used to come up with that evidence update was a six week stretching program that was described as eccentric stretching. Um, one set required participants to perform nine plantar flexor stretches, six with their knees straight and three with their knee bent off the end of a step. Each heel drop stretch was held for 15 to 20 seconds. And the participants increased from one set to three and from bilateral to the involved side only over that six week period. So it was really just an outline stretching program. And they say that the pain decreased to a zero on a zero to 10 um, visual analog scale from a 7.2 at baseline to a 2.9 at 12 weeks. So 82% of the participants in that study reported a level of satisfaction of seven out of 10 or greater with treatment. So exactly what I just said, you know, if you're decreasing their pain, they're probably going to be pretty satisfied where I think stretching may leave something to be desired is if you're changing the mechanical stress or issue that's causing the, um, the Achilles tendinopathy, if they feel good, then can you help keep them feeling good or give them some other strategies to help, you know, change their, their foot function with more dynamic activities? The next one that they talk about is neuromuscular re-education. Um, this is actually, which was surprising to me, a level F evidence, which means it's an expert opinion. They say that neuromuscular exercises targeting the lower extremity may lead to um, abnormal kinetics or, and or kinematics, specifically eccentric overload of the Achilles tendon during weight-bearing activities. So essentially what they're saying there is if someone doesn't have really good awareness or positional sense um, or proprioception when you're having them do, for example, a lot of single leg activities and that stress, you know, their hip isn't or their knee isn't necessarily equipped with the strength and proprioception to handle that load of single leg, a lot of single leg work. What's that doing at their foot and is it contributing to the onset of some of these symptoms? So again, I think just being mindful of how you're dosing exercise, choosing activities that are appropriate for the patient population, you know, don't pick a lot of single leg activity in someone that maybe doesn't need to do a lot of single leg activity. Um, do you have anything there, Alexis, to add about neuromuscular training and or stretching? No, not really. I mean, I definitely agree with you on the stretching. I feel like it's typically not like what I seem to find is yes, they get that sort of like immediate pain relief from doing some stretching. Um, but that's usually kind of a secondary issue because they have pain. Things tend to like tighten up and guard and, um, so, you know, it's definitely something that I would give these people, but I just explain why that's not the only thing they need to be doing, even though you seem to get that nice relief afterwards, like that's awesome, but not necessarily, you know, the only thing you need to be doing. So definitely sure. agree with that. So for manual therapy, um, is the next intervention they suggest. And that in 2010 was a level F evidence. And actually the 2018 recommendation also maintains that level F. Um, expert opinion recommendation, um, which means you should be using it in clinical practice in a guarded fashion. 
but they suggest that using joint mobilization may improve joint mobility and function, and soft tissue mobilization may increase range of motions for patients with mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. Again, not a strong recommendation there, no strong research to tell us exactly what manual therapy techniques to do. Um, I often will do a little bit of soft tissue work with these people. I think because I get them at such a chronic stage that sometimes I do find they have that that true like shortening and that irritation of the tendon that's not acute. It's not going to respond just to exercise. Um, but essentially so far, your best recommendations are for exercise, that eccentric loading. The next category is patient education or suggesting activity modifications. Um, you need to advise the patients that complete rest is not indicated. So sometimes these patients start to get this pain and they just shut down. They are like, I started a walking program and then they just stop altogether, but that they maybe need to be dosing or using different frequencies for the exercises or activities that they're already doing and teaching them to work within their pain tolerance and what's tolerable and what's not. They divide this into a separate section um, called patient counseling. I'm not exactly sure why. But essentially what they say is key elements of patient counseling are theories to support the use of physical therapy and the role of mechanical loading, modifiable risk factors, including their BMI and their footwear, and the typical time course for recovery of symptoms. So again, I think that's probably evidence that we're, or education that we're sharing with most of our patients, but they mention it specifically in here. Heel lifts, I feel like this is a always evolving you know, everybody has a different opinion on, but the CPG says that because contradictory evidence exists, no recommendation can be made for the use of heel lifts in patients with mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. So a lot of times patients come in with a heel lift, they've, you know, Googled, they've, I find that they've self put them in a heel lift, um, or every now and then, like I've had a patient come in that's added a heel lift to an already custom orthotic that they've been wearing forever or something like that. Um, I try to get them out of that as soon as possible. I find that it just doesn't necessarily help a lot, um, and the research supports that. Next section is night splints. So there's this is a level C recommendation, and they suggest that clinicians should not use night splints to improve symptoms in patients with mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. So if you'll recall from the plantar fasciitis episode, we suggested the use of um, night splints could be helpful for the first few months. The same recommendation is not there for Achilles tendinopathy. So um, just make sure you're not necessarily recommending that. Next section is orthoses. Again, this is a level D evidence. So kind of all of these adjunct treatments that we can provide patients between bracing and heel lifts and night splints and orthotics and all that has really variable evidence. And it's kind of case report type stuff. No strong, good research is out there. Um, but the 2018 recommendation for orthotics is that, again, because contradictory evidence exists, no recommendation can be made for the use of foot orthoses in patients with mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. Now, with all of these recommendations like this, I think it's important to know that it's a tool in your toolbox. Um, it shouldn't be your first go-to, but if someone's really struggling or, you know, they have to stand for a 12-hour shift, it's, it's probably not going to hurt them to put it there, you know, like a, a over-the-counter foot orthotic. Um, if it makes them feel a little bit more comfortable and they can be in less pain to tolerate eccentric loading better, I think there's something to be said about that. Um, the next section is taping. So this recommendation is the same from 2010 to 2018. They say that you should not use therapeutic elastic tape to reduce pain or improve functional performance. And that they may, that they would, um, with level F, 
level F evidence recommend the use of rigid taping to decrease strain on the Achilles tendon and or alter the foot posture in patients with mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. So again, I think you have to be mindful of what you're choosing, a rigid tape versus therapeutic elastic tape, and what is your actual goal with the tape? Are we trying to decrease strain and alter a foot position or posture, or are you just trying to reduce pain? Um, do you have anything on taping, Alexis? I, I do it sometimes in the clinic. Again, it's a tool I use. I don't know that I do it with every Achilles tendinopathy patient I have. Yeah, I mean... I definitely use tape with these people. It just depends on what exactly my goal is with the tape. Like if for some reason there's, you know, edema in the ankle, sometimes I'll use like kinesio tape, some of the techniques to try and get some of that swelling out. Sometimes I will tape over the Achilles just for, you know, a little bit of that feedback, a little bit of decompression and just see. And if it doesn't help, I don't do it again. But, you know, sometimes there is a little bit of that, whether it's placebo effect or whatever, um, I think it just depends on the patient. And sometimes I think it's worth trying, you know, clinically, but I think, you know, obviously for the test, understanding that, you know, the evidence isn't necessarily there to, to show a lot of benefit from elastic tape and even really from the rigid taping. So the next um, kind of modality type intervention they suggest using is low level, low level laser therapy. The 2010 recommendation with level B evidence was that they should that clinicians should use low-level laser therapy. That recommendation has changed significantly to a level D evidence, and a little more research has come out about that. It's a little bit more contradictory, and now there's no recommendation for the use of low-level laser therapy in patients with mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. So just be aware of that one. Um, you know, it's it's changed. So make sure you're studying off the right CPG here. Next one, iantophoresis. The recommendations exactly the same as 2010. Um, iantophoresis should be used with dexamethasone to decrease pain and improve function. That one's pretty self-explanatory. Dry needling. So there was no recommendation for dry needling in 2010. The 2018 recommendation is level F evidence, but they say that clinicians may use a combined therapy of dry needling with injection under ultrasound guidance and eccentric exercises to decrease pain for individuals with um, symptoms greater than three months and have an increased tendon thickness. So again, it's case study evidence. And I think that's just because there's not enough research out about dry needling yet. I think this is an area we will see change a lot. Um, but I think the important thing to note there is it's always in a combined treatment approach. They use it with eccentric exercise and it's been patients with symptoms greater than three months. So very specific population there. And then a couple notes here on the interventions outside the scope of physical therapy. The first one is a corticosteroid injection. They say that initial short-term benefit is not maintained at the intermediate and long-term follow-ups after having a cortisone injection. Um, the risk of a tendon rupture is low and other minor complications are more common, including some post-injection pain and subcutaneous atrophy and skin, de um, skin depigmentation. So they say that it should never be used as like a first resort that patients should be able to manage with exercise alone or a combination of exercise and the glucocorticosteroid injection. So just keep that in mind that it probably isn't a standalone treatment. And I, um, I heard a physician talk like a week or two ago, and he was saying that he very rarely gives patients an injection the first time he sees them for a consult because he typically, if they get an injection, they don't end up in our office first thing because it takes a lot of their pain away, but it's not addressing that mechanical issue. So he'll send them to therapy first and maybe consider an injection when they come back, depending on how they're doing. 
So just something to be aware of. The next section is the extracorporeal shockwave therapy. They say that when it's combined with eccentric exercise for chronic mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, um, it's supported in the systematic reviews with improvement in visa A scores, pain, and function. They say that it's favored when it's combined with eccentric exercise. So again, not a standalone treatment. Um, I think rarely you're going to see a recommendation for any one of these types of things to be a standalone treatment. And then lastly here is the platelet rich plasma injections. So there's been multiple systematic reviews on these, and they've determined that there's no support for the use of a PRP injection um, over a variety of outcomes. So they've looked at visa A scores, they've looked at return to sport timelines, ultrasound measures and tissue quality, and their function using the FAM um, in this population of those patients with mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. Um, so again, I there's no support there for a PRP injection. So if patients are asking about those, it's something I would be aware of, be educated about. So in essence, that kind of wraps up the tendinopathy management for mid-portion Achilles um, issues. Do you have anything, Alexis, to add? It's a fairly straightforward yeah. one. Yeah, I think it's definitely straightforward. And I think just knowing, you know, obviously this is an area where physical therapy can definitely be, you know, the prime treatment and, and exercise has, you know, the good evidence great evidence to back it up. So I think that's something we can really use to educate our patients. Sure. Sure. Um, so coming up next, we're going to be kind of shifting gears that covers most of the um, CPGs that kind of wraps up that part of the podcast for us. Mm -hmm. We're going to be doing a couple other adjunct episodes here for stuff that we think is probably really helpful. Um, the one after this coming up will be a touch base, Alexis touch base with Steve from MedBridge. So if you listen to our plantar fasciitis episode, we um, announced that we are now affiliated with MedBridge. So there'll be a whole episode about that if you need more information. Steve is great and he'll be able to explain that well. And then after that, we're going to look at some upper extremity nerve entrapments. That's an area of important differential diagnosis in terms of preparing for the OCS. So that's kind of what's on the horizon. Yep. So, um, you know, as always, if you guys have any questions, feel free to shoot us an email. Um, we'll, I always put that in the show notes. Um, and if you have any questions about uh, MedBridge or anything like that, um, like Amanda said, we'll be releasing that episode next week. But otherwise, if you have anything in the interim, please feel free to reach out and shoot us an email and we'll get back to you. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks.